0: hello and welcome to peach potty georgia politics podcast my name is kyle hazen i am your host and the crew is back together it's been a while y'all we are joined today by luke boggs and megan payne how y'all doing doing well
1: oh i'm doing just fine
0: Well, uh, it's been a minute. Uh, Last week, we had a wonderful discussion with Teresa Tomlinson. She is considering whether or not to run for the US Senate. Um, So if you missed that interview in our feed, definitely scroll up and check that one out. Uh, But today we are going to talk about a case being taken up by the Supreme Court that is going to decide whether federal civil rights law currently applies to employment discrimination against LGBT people. Um, This was a case that the court announced they were taking up this week. And initially, it looked like a promising uh, effort for people who care about LGBT rights, because this is a question the court maybe ought to consider. But I saw a lot of progressive court watchers who were throwing up red flags about having this case in front of this court. So we'll talk about that issue. And then for our second topic this week, we are going to talk about Uh, campaign season as it gets going. Uh, The Georgia 7th Congressional District, uh, that district has a new entrant in it, Lynn Homrich. She joined at the beginning of this week, put out a new ad, um, and both her and Karen Handel, who is making a comeback bid in the sixth, they have pretty similar messages that voters are going to be able to consider starting in the Republican primary this year. Um, And then uh, we'll wrap it up today with a quick discussion of a lawsuit filed by uh, a group of professors at the University of Georgia who are seeking to challenge the state's campus carry law. Um, They are making an argument that the state constitution prohibits the legislature from enacting a law like campus carry because the Board of Regents has authority over what goes on on University of system. University System of Georgia campuses. So we'll talk about that argument and where that case might go. But first, y'all, this is the first time that we've gotten together since the Mueller report was released. Um, so last week, Attorney General Bill Barr released a redacted report of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian efforts to influence the 2016 election. The report concluded that there was insufficient evidence to establish that the president or his associates engaged in a criminal conspiracy with Russia. But the special counsel did not clear the president on obstruction of justice, leaving that determination to Congress. Georgia's elected Democrats have largely avoided calling to start the impeachment process, with one exception being a potential Senate candidate, Teresa Tomlinson, who we talked to last week. Let's start on this one. And Luke, let's start with just your reaction to what was in the Mueller report and what you think about the next step should be in terms of whether or not Democrats in the U.S. House should consider beginning the impeachment process with the president.
1: What the report basically says is that Democrats should still look into this. Uh, there's, you know, This report's very long. I don't think very few people have actually read the whole thing yet, uh, except Robert Mueller. And it basically seems quite clear from what Robert Mueller put in that report that the Justice Department did not have enough evidence to indict him, especially considering the Justice Department policy that they do not like to indict sitting presidents, which I think is, you know, very valid. So in response to that, I think it is Congress's job to hold him accountable for the obstruction of justice claims and to look into them further. Uh, Additionally, I think the biggest revelation in this is that there are 14 cases, two of which we know about, which uh, the Special Counsel's office like spun off and gave to other offices because it went beyond the scope that they had. I mean, it was a very limited scope. And what did the Russians do in the 2016 election? And did Donald Trump obstruct justice? Those are the two questions he was looking at. So there are 12 other investigations that came out of the work Robert Mueller was doing into Donald Trump that were looking into. As far as impeachment goes. I'm sort of of the opinion that like Donald Trump has probably done things that we should not want any president to do, period. And he should probably be held accountable for that. And so I think the uh, mixture with what we know right now is that the House needs to keep investigating and, you know, hopefully the American people can kick him out in 2020.
0: Yeah, Megan, what were your takeaways from the report?
2: Mine were really similar to Luke's. I didn't feel like... Well, first of all, it was redacted so heavily that I don't feel like we really learned anything that we didn't already suspect, Um, at least, you know, from what we were given.
0: And and a lot of it, too, reporters had already dug up a lot of this stuff. So a lot of it, like you're saying, just didn't seem all that new.
2: Right. And so then what you have is, you know, yeah, they didn't indict him. Okay, And I'm with Luke. Like the House needs to continue to look into this. But I also am of the feeling, and we talked about this on the podcast before, that impeachment is not necessarily the best way to get rid of a president. It's certainly not necessarily the most effective. Um, We've yet to have a, a quote unquote successful impeachment of a president. And it
1: has a bagging average of zero.
2: Right. So it just what it ends up doing is it spends a lot of time and resources on something that has a very low chance of being successful when what we really need to be doing is energizing the base and voting against him in the next cycle.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, as Democrats in the House consider this decision, I think it's worth thinking through is there actually really a difference between launching the impeachment process by bringing up articles of impeachment, running them through the committee process, taking a vote on the floor? versus continuing to do investigations through the Oversight Committee and other committees in the House that are going to tangle with these questions that are raised by the report anyways. And so do you actually need the impeachment process for that to happen? Because once you put the word impeachment on it, I think then it becomes immediately more polarizing. And it's not clear to me that there is anything that you as a committee in the House Can't do unless you start on the impeachment path, with the exception of referring impeachment to the Senate. But I think, in terms of fact finding and in terms of putting out information into the press, I mean, the press is going to follow closely any kind of investigation that comes out of this. So that information is going to get out and the American people are going to hear about it. And so you know, not having to put the word impeachment on it seems to have some upside when you can continue to do those investigations. So, so that's where I think I would like to see the House go. Um, Yeah, Georgia's delegation in this, they, none of the elected officials have really said that the impeachment process needs to start. I think they're kind of where we are, uh, which is continue to find out more information, get the full unredacted Mueller report, get Robert Mueller to testify in front of the Congress, and then decide from there. Um, but it does seem to me that that is both, I think, the right path, but also convenient as a way to buy time, uh, because 2020 will be here before we know it.
2: Right. Well, and it doesn't serve necessarily um, candidates in or or incumbents in contested seats to lean heavily on one side or the other of like, yes, let's impeach. No, let's don't, because it then tends to polarize their base. Whereas if they can take a middle road, I feel like it runs less of a risk of them alienating part of their base who has very strong feelings about impeachment one way or the other.
0: Plus, we avoid the possibility of a President Pence, which also seems like a good plan.
2: I'm totally okay with no President Pence. He might even be worse for LGBT issues than Trump.
0: He, he, he probably would be. Well, speaking of LGBT issues, let's move on to our first big topic this week. So on Monday, the Supreme Court agreed to take up a group of cases that raised the question of whether or not the Civil Rights Act already protects LGBT people from discrimination in employment. One of these cases comes from the firing of Gerald Lynn Bostock, a child welfare services coordinator who was fired by Clayton County here in Georgia after joining a gay softball league. Georgia Equality, the state's leading LGBT advocacy group, praised the take up saying that SCOTUS would have the opportunity to affirm a consensus that's been building in the court for decades. That is that discriminating against a person based on who they love or the gender with which they identify is a form of sex discrimination. Uh, But other progressive court watchers were not as optimistic about this case coming before the court. Um, So let's discuss some of that. Megan, what is your reaction to seeing this case come before the Supreme Court? It's going to go Um, in the upcoming term, and and we're expecting a decision in 2020?
2: A little excitement, but mostly terror. Um, Given the nature of the Supreme Court and how it is a more conservative court than it has been in the past, this is potentially not going to go well. However, there is a chance that it will go well. And that's actually really exciting because it could could codify the LGBTQ community as a protected class.
0: Luke, what do you think about the legal argument at hand here. Can you well, first, can you kind of just describe for us what the legal argument is, and then the different directions that it could go in?
1: It's still very early. But the basic outline of what we'd be looking at here is that Title VII protects people against discrimination and employment because of sex. And some people read sex very limitedly, and other people read sex very expansively and so the question is in you know in the language of title seven does sex include sexual orientation and gender identity or does it just mean are you male or female i mean that's really what we're coming down to is just a statutory interpretation. And while the justices and the you know court has faced these questions before, this is the first time to my knowledge that they have faced these questions post the gay marriage decision. And so if you uh, are following the precedent of the court in that gay uh, marriage is constitutional and required by the Constitution, then it would not be uh, a very far step in my mind to include uh, at least sexual orientation on, you know, uh, as part of Title VII, if not also gender identity.
0: Yeah. And this is an important question for LGBT people, Megan. What, What are some of the impacts of employment discrimination on LGBT people?
2: So in the state of Georgia, and in, I believe, at least 20 other states in these United States, there are no protections for LGBT people re- re- regarding keeping one's job. So there are all these non-discrimination clauses that people have, um, and things like race are protected, and actual sex is protected, and those sorts of things. But gender identity and um, sexual orientation are not protected. And so it just kind of alienates the the class of LGBT people where things get kind of dicey and there have been people who have been fired because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, as we're seeing in these three cases that are in front of SCOTUS. So it it could potentially mean the loss of jobs. It could mean the loss of livelihoods. And there is no protection and no recourse for that right now.
0: So yeah, and that's really what happened in this case. So the reason, you know, particularly that we're interested in this case is because it does draw on a case that happened in Georgia. As we said, uh, this man, Gerald Lynn Bostock, he was a child welfare services coordinator for Clayton County. And AJC reported on this when describing the case earlier this week, they uh, talked about how Uh, Bostock had consistently had good performance reviews with the county. And then at one point he joined a gay softball league, which was the way in which his employer found out about his sexual orientation. And, um, he said in court, he said that he was criticized for his participation in the league. And in April of 2013, the county conducted an audit on the funds that were managed by Bostock and fired him two months later for what was described as conduct unbecoming of a county employee. But Bostock argued in court that the audit and uh, the resulting criticism of his performance was just a pretext uh, to fire him because he was gay. Um, So his case is one of three cases that the court has taken up. But they all focus on this question of whether or not the prohibition of discrimination on the basis of sex in the Civil Rights Act applies uh, to sexual orientation and gender identity. Megan, why could this case go
2: badly? So fun fact before I tell you why the case could go badly. Did you notice in the audit that they said that he misspent misspent funds at Midtown restaurants, which are in the known gayborhood, which is like an extra nail in the coffin. Oh, he's extra gay because when he screwed up his job, or so they say, it was at gay places too.
0: I did not notice that.
2: Um, so yeah, fun, horrifying fact. Um, but why could this go badly? This could go badly because A, it could solidify in people's minds that, okay, it's okay to discriminate against the LGBTQ community. But also depending on how the language is interpreted, it could actually gut Title VII for women in general.
0: Yeah, this was the thing that I found most alarming. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern at Slate wrote about this. And and he basically argued that the the language is very simple. And so the language in the statute has allowed courts to find protection against sexual harassment, protection against uh, gender stereotyping. There was another case from the 80s, in which a a woman who was a high performer at an accounting firm, and she was passed over for being made a partner at that firm uh, because her colleague says that she was too masculine. She she acted too much like a man. and And the court eventually found that discrimination based on gender stereotypes was prohibited because of the way that this text was read. And so the sort of worst-case scenario as you look at this is that not only would this be a missed opportunity to provide these protections for LGBT people, but you also could roll back some of the cases that had um, had been decided before. Luke, how, how do you think, given the current court, how do you think that this might shake out?
1: If you're just asking me, I would think that the only person to really watch in this case would be Justice Roberts. Uh, he tends to be... Even before Kennedy left the court, mindful of going in a completely anti-majoritarian direction sometimes and cares about the reputation of the court. Um, And because of that, I think there's a possibility that he might uh, side on the side of this uh, legislation also protecting uh, folks of same-sex sexual orientation. Uh, it's it's hard to tell. I know some folks are looking at Justice Kavanaugh. I, I think the big difference is here is that we now, if you follow stare decisis, like same-sex marriage is constitutional, it's required by the Constitution, and so that is something that one could and should consider in the definition of sex. And so, if Roberts is following the precedent the court set and the you know the reasoning that was in the majority of that case. Then I would think that he should uh, uphold that interpretation. Uh, that being said, you know <laughs> it's the Supreme Court, and we'd be lying if, it, um, if we pretended that it's, it hasn't become a partisan institution. And so uh, we we might not be uh, so so lucky on that front. The other aspect of this is looking at the uh, legislative intent. And unfortunately, on that front, it's pretty clear that was not the intent of the legislators. Uh, and it's actually a strange place we're in because it's a shame Scalia is not here anymore. Because uh, Justice Scalia, uh, hated, uh legislative intent arguments saying went after people who made them quite aggressively. So uh, his absence on the court will be uh, somewhat felt because of that.
0: So Megan, if this ultimately doesn't go well, as a lot of people think, you know, hopefully you avoid the worst case scenario where where the ruling ends up rolling back other rulings that have expanded protections for women in other areas related to gender discrimination is there another opportunity for lgbt lgbt people to be protected in you know by to be protected by law
2: yes so in fact as we speak the equality act is in front of both the house and the senate and so we're waiting to see if if that's going to move in either chamber. For those who are not familiar with the Equality Act, it does add the same – it adds to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Somebody check me on that. I think it's four. Basically, it adds the LGBTQ community as a class of protected citizens.
0: You know, I I would like to think – you know, nearly seven in 10 people now polling shows think that employers should not be able to fire somebody because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So you would hope that there would be a large constituency for this legislation in Congress right now. The one concern I would have is I I bet there's almost no way to get Trump on board if he is listening to Mike Pence on this issue. I think the interesting thing with this bill is, um, this is, I imagine it will pass the House. I I think it'll have no problem passing a Democratic House. But, you know, it may not go anywhere in the Senate. This bill is going to be out there as likely as a House-passed bill in this Congress when this decision gets handed down. And if, particularly if it is viewed as this counter-majoritarian opinion where the country has largely moved on and gone one way, uh, but the court has not, and they are really an outlier, then this bill is going to be out there as the solution. And it's going to be out there in the summer of 2020, when this ruling is expected to come down, which is going to be the heat of the presidential campaign. And the Democratic nominee and President Trump are going to have to take positions on where they stand on this. And I think it's an interesting, uh, potentially an interesting political issue where it's another point where Trump may have to take a very, very unpopular position while while Democrats are going to be standing on the side of, you know, seven and 10 people in this country. So the one uh, sort of oddity uh, that we noticed about this bill is that it is currently it's introduced in the House and the Senate, you know, we would expect it to move in the House and and maybe not in the Senate. But uh, Megan, why is this bill currently introduced on both sides of the Congress?
2: Well, it increases the odds of it passing, but also it shows how much support there truly is in the Congress. There are something like 280 co-sponsors of these bills combined. And the bills, as far as I can tell, are identical text, except for one says Senate and the other says House. Um, and so this just, A, increases the odds of it passing, but as already mentioned, it, there, it's very likely it'll do anything in the Senate. But it's just a nice statement piece And also really shows that this isn't a terribly partisan issue because of who has co-sponsored it and how many co-sponsors there are.
0: Do we know if there's bipartisan co-sponsors?
2: There are only three Republicans who have co-sponsored it, but there are still three Republican co-sponsors nonetheless. So that's pretty, it's pretty telling just given where the nation is going that this is starting to become less of a partisan issue.
0: Yeah, I think it would be progress over 15 years ago. But I I definitely think that given the general polling, that you would almost expect a few more Republicans to be on here. But, you know, a a lot of the uh, moderate Republicans in swing districts were sent packing in 2018. So uh, this might have more sponsors if more Republicans had won re-election last time around. All right, so we will keep an eye on that case. Uh, You know, as we said, that case is really early in the process. The court just said that they were going to take it up. Um, So we got a ways to go until that ruling comes down, but that is something to look forward to. Um, So let's move on to our next topic. Also on Monday, uh, Lynn Homerick, a former Home Depot executive, entered the race for the 7th Congressional District. Her opening video attacked high-profile Democratic women, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar, and said that she was going to go to Congress to stand with President Trump. Her video mirrors the opening missive from Karen Handel, who launched her comeback bid for the 6th Congressional District, and her video also started with cameos of the same women. Um, including the exact same clip of Nancy Pelosi uh, talking about no money for Trump's wall. Uh, Let's start by listening to a little bit of Hummrich's opening message here.
2: I'm running for Congress to strengthen our economy, make sure families have affordable health care and great schools, and that American values are celebrated, not attacked. I'll work with President Trump to make America stronger, and I'll take on the career politicians from both parties to get results for you. We need more competency and less chaos. Results, not resistance. Together, we can change Washington and start solving problems again. Join me.
0: Luke, what do you think about Republicans setting up this race by number one, saying that they're going to go to Washington to stand with President Trump, and number two, picking out uh, AOC, Tlaib, and Omar and saying that if her kids acted like them, she would ground them or if her employees acted like them, she would fire them, which was another part of that ad. What do you think about that introduction into the race?
1: I think it's a strange tone to take. It, it feels very like Southern strategy 1970s. And everything that we've seen indicates that the suburbs which is, you know, effectively a, a large part of the district is, is moving away uh, from that kind of politics and really have, have been turned off by that. So I, I'm pretty surprised that's the dire- the direction that, you know, she's going in. And the seventh is a really interesting race, because obviously, everyone has been talking about the the six since losing McBath one, but you know, Carolyn Doe got a lot less attention than Lucy McBath did. It's the, you know, the seventh was the district that all the political insiders, all the politicos and Daga freaks like I am, looked at and thought, like, this is the seat that we can flip. And Borgo really almost got there with far less money, far less attention, and being a first-time candidate. And so I think this is just a sign that the Republicans don't really know how to uh, win general elections in these seats safely, and they're very, very focused on winning their primaries. this This is a you know this is a Republican primary ag. Like, you would not be running this ag unless you had to win a Republican primary. And so that that's my major takeaway because. Last time, it was almost, you know, 400 votes away uh, from, from flipping. You're going to be in a presidential race. Uh, any Democratic presidential nominee who is trying to win the state of Georgia will be very active in this district. So I, I, I just think this is an opening salvo, and we're going to see a lot more of this. And it'll be interesting to see how uh, the district reacts to it.
0: Megan, uh, two women running on the Democratic side, they had a pretty sharp response to Hummer's ad. Kaylin Bordeaux said that Hamrick will quickly realize that she does not represent the values of our district and that voters here simply do not accept someone who thinks they can, who thinks she can buy our seat in Congress to cozy up to Donald Trump while being condescending and dismissive to women leaders of color. Nabila Islam said uh, that this is a majority minority district and she chose to attack three women of color in her rollout video. It just goes to show you what Hamrick and the GOP really think about communities of color. What did you make of those reactions?
2: I absolutely agree with them. It was a bad move on Hamrick's part to call out the three women that she did. I get the point that she was trying to make, but at the same time, With the political stakes being what they are, you're going to see some more fiery behavior. And it's not just on the side of the Democrats, right? It's on the side of the Republicans, too. Wouldn't she also ground the president for the way he's been behaving? I mean, take away his phone and his Twitter account. So the same logic that she used to talk badly about the Democrats can be used to talk badly about the president himself. So, yeah, lady, go ground the president. See it in a you know an election cycle or two i think the
1: really notable thing about this is (laughs) that Even Renee Unterman had a strong response. <laughs> her quote was, uh, "Maybe that Buckhead lady running for the seventh congressional district might need to take some directions to hashtag #coming hashtag #Lawrenceville, because of course it was a tweet. Uh, turn on that Mercedes G. Uh, sorry, turn on that Mercedes GPS for i eighty five North or GA <laughs> GA four hundred. Be glad to show you around.
0: So, and and somebody quote tweeted her and and uh, said she was uh, really savage, and then she tweeted that retweeted that tweet about herself i kind of wanted to subtweet her a little bit and say well what if i want to take a train there (laughs) because i can't
2: (laughs) you can't Can't. you can't can you even take a bus there yeah maybe
0: probably not though not not not, not in a reasonable amount of time because gwinnett decided to vote no on marta anyways i digress um yeah i i'm really intrigued by the The view that this type of campaigning is kind of a new, updated for 2019 Southern strategy. These are three women of color who are pitched as radicals. Um, and this radical messaging about people who do not represent your values, and they all happen to be non-white, is striking to me. Um, and it's striking, you know, it's not surprising that somebody like David Perdue might use that kind of rhetoric when running statewide, because David Perdue's preaching to a choir in rural Georgia, and that choir, you know, believes that message. And they, they, this is why both Trump and, and, and Brian Kemp ran up big numbers in rural Georgia. The 7th Congressional District is not located down in Metter. It is in Metro Atlanta, and it is... Uh, I think, Hey, Gwinnett- everything is better and better, Kyle. Yeah, that's what I hear. Um, and it's, the district may be one of the most diverse districts in the country. I know Gwinnett County is one of the most diverse counties in the country. So to throw out that kind of red meat early and to adopt that kind of strategy to me, you know, that stuff's going to be hard to walk back in the general and it's going to be really difficult to walk back when you're doing that on the coattails of a president who does the same thing, who, who professionalized the new Southern strategy in his race in 2016. Um, so, I mean, I guess they think that's what the ball game is, uh, getting that message out there. But it sure says a lot about what the Republican Party right now thinks is a persuasive message in any district that they want to run in.
1: So there's two things about this. Everybody's always fighting the last war. This is the 2010 throw Nancy Pelosi in every one of your ads and you automatically win strategy updated for 2019 because now there's more villains than Nancy Pelosi and they just lost an election. Run it, you know, where the Republican primary talking point besides immigration was Nancy Pelosi is scary. Elect me and she will not be scary again. Uh, so I think there's that. And then you know if her <laughs> if her goal was for all of us to be talking about her, Homerick was incredibly successful because now we all know who her name is and I would not have known if it wasn't for this ad. So as far as trying to like make a push, uh, you know, and all all press being good press, she she won that fight.
0: What do we think about this sort of unified message across the suburbs. Homerick's ad was very similar to Karen Handel's ad. It had the same villains in the beginning, but then it had the same sort of vague, you know, those those angry radicals are focused on all these things that don't represent your values, but I'm going to go to Washington and I'm going to take care of the economy with no detail beyond that about what would you do. Um, I'm going to go to Washington, and I'm going to fight for veterans. And I don't remember what else was in the ad. But it was all these just sort of like vague platitudes where the the message seems to be what are you going to vote against? Not what are you going to vote for? Megan, what do you think about that sort of unified message in the sixth and the seventh?
2: Um, I think that they're definitely using, they're, they're intentionally using the same strategies, right? That They've already kind of figured out what will win in each district, because let's face it, while Lucy McBath is in right now, handle this one before. And it that messaging probably does work at least somewhat.
0: Do you think that messaging is a little more persuasive coming from two women candidates? Like, you may have two, you may have four women Vying for the two seats in Macbeth Bordeaux, and then either Hamrick or Unterman are the two uh, primary Republicans that are going to get in and and handle may have a pretty good handle on the primary in the sixth. Do you oh, think um, sh- that that? <laughs> do you think that that message? I don't. It's easier to sell if it comes from a woman, or or do you think that that matters?
2: I think it does matter. I think that one of the thing that we one of the things that we like to believe about. Women is that all women are going to vote in support of their own, um, their own themselves, right? So if we see a woman up there talking about, I'm pro-life and this is why and I'm a woman and all of these things, then we're more likely to believe her because she's actually experienced it. And so when we have these women up here who are talking about all of these values that we normally hear coming from men and that we hear feminist women and other women saying, no, that's not okay, um, it all of a sudden puts a different spin on it. It puts a different light on it. It's like, okay, well, if these women support it, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's not as anti-woman or maybe it's not as conservative as I think it is because these women are doing okay.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be really interested to see how the issue of the heartbeat abortion ban bill plays out in this race. Um, over on the 7th, the side of the 7th, you know, Renee Enterman might jump into this race. She was the lead sponsor of the bill in the Senate. Homrick, I don't think she's been asked about this. We'll ask her about it if we get a chance to talk to her, what her view is of the bill. Every Republican in the Gwinnett County state legislative delegation voted for the heartbeat bill, except for Brett Harrell. He was uh, either absent or excused. I can't remember. So even though we're talking about a county in Gwinnett that has rapidly changed, that uh, Democrats are starting to carry with more frequency, um, you know, the Democrats now make up the majority of the state legislative delegation in Gwinnett, but every Republican, they still did not feel pressure despite the changes in the county to vote for that bill. Um, it's also an issue that Karen Handel is going to have to deal with over in the 6th, because when she was in Congress for, what, like a year and a half, she and the House of Representatives voted for a federal 20-week abortion ban. And then, you know, they are going to face uh, two women on the other side who are uh, not going to, um, you know, who who are going to make clear the horrendous impacts of The abortion ban in Georgia. Um, So it's going to be interesting to me to see kind of how they deal with that bill. All right, so those races, you know, they're just developing. Homrick is the first candidate to jump in on the Republican side in the seventh. We'll see who jumps in. Um, Karen Handel, she's going to have a primary challenge with Brandon Beach. Um, I believe he also voted for the heartbeat abortion ban bill. So it's pretty much Republican unity on that issue. Uh, We're going to see how they deal with that in the primary and then how they try to clean it up in the general. Um, Let's talk about our third topic this week. Uh, Earlier this week, the AJC reported that a group of Georgia professors was going to issue a legal challenge to the campus carry law, the law that allows people to carry guns on college campuses in the state of Georgia. They are making an argument, Luke, that I'm not sure I quite understand. Um, Can you explain for me and for our listeners what the group of professors is actually arguing against this campus carry bill?
1: The argument that they are making is that the state government does not have the authority to implement a policy like this on in the university system of georgia the basis for their claim actually comes from the georgia constitution uh and if you look in section four of the georgia constitution uh paragraph one section b
0: pull out your constitutions folks yes
1: your georgia constitution i know you've got one in your pocket exactly the end the end of that uh section b says quote the government control and management of the university system of georgia and all of the institutions in said system shall be vested in the board of regents of the university system of georgia so they basically are saying because of that the state does not have the authority to to make a policy uh like campus carry effective the Primary issue that they have run into this is pretty interesting because if you look at the brief of appellees that was filed on February 11th, 2019, the state. Basically says they have no standing and they don't actually address the merits of their claim. Uh, Georgia is one of the states that has sovereign immunity. And so uh, the state basically is claiming that since the uh, state of Georgia cannot be sued, uh, they do not have the authority to bring this. Sorry, they do not have the uh, standing to bring this case. And, which means that basically the court can't hear it, if that is true. Uh, the professors tried to get around this by not suing the state of Georgia, but instead suing Nathan Deal and Chris Carr, uh, when obviously Nathan Deal was governor, because this case began some time ago, and now uh, is being updated that they are suing uh, Brian Kemp in their individual capacities and basically uh, making the argument that because they let this policy go through and are in... in Part of implementing it, uh, they they are uh, at fault.
0: Now is this, I have a narrow technical question here for you, Luke. Is this impacted by the fact that the state did pass a law this legislative session that says you can now sue the state to challenge laws like these? The, the sovereign immunity for the state will be gone once this bill goes into effect, right?
1: So uh, dealing with HB um 311 which has been sent to the, the governor but not signed by the governor that may help them it definitely would help them uh, their college professors that is but the problem with that is that um the the current state of the law is not in their favor and you obviously have to like deal with that uh, and until uh until Kemp signs this legislation potentially he might not sign it he might not sign it because of this legislation and then the other thing that the brief of the appellees mentions is that you uh, can't get injunctive relief for violations of uh, a criminal statute is one thing that they mention, and so that might protect them as well. Because I don't know how HB three eleven uh, affects that piece of it. So really, it's it's difficult to to know for sure. Uh, but by reading the provision, it does not seem like this case is completely warrantless. At least in you know my uh, estimation, it's it's one of those things though that like definitely, uh, I don't know, I'm having so many thoughts. Let me stop there and then you can ask us more questions.
0: Well, I think I'm actually interested in backing this out into a broader discussion about Campus Carry. You know, Campus Carry passed a few years ago. The universe has not fallen. It's not like we have daily shootouts on on Georgia college campuses. But I, I thought about when I saw this, I thought about what happened earlier this week when a student uh, was shot during an armed robbery attempt near UGA's campus at a bus stop this week. And I wish Ben here was here for this question, but I'm I'm curious what what you both think of this question. If you're a supporter of campus carry, and you look at what happened on campus earlier this week, where a student was approached at a bus stop was shot, suffered life-threatening injuries. I think as of today, as of we're recording, the, the, students, the student is in stable condition. Uh, but he very easily could have died in this encounter. Is the view of supporters of Campus Carry that what should have happened in that instance was the student who was attacked should have had a gun and should have been able to open fire on the person trying to rob him? Uh, and started basically a shootout at a bus stop at a, on a college campus at 7 o'clock in the morning on a weekday morning. Is that the reality that we think campus carry supporters want on college campuses? What do you think, Megan?
2: I think what they're actually going for is like the hero figure with the gun. So not, I don't think they expect everyone to be packing, But I think what they do expect is that somebody who is very gun savvy will be walking around with their gun and will see this happen and will take a shot or two and, you know, be the hero of the situation. At least that's always the impression that I've gotten. Um, Now, granted, maybe some people do take the stance that like, oh, everyone should just carry a gun. And yeah, this kid could have protected himself if he only had a gun. Um, But also. He didn't. And so where was the hero with the gun? There were no guns around except for the guy doing the shooting, the guy committing the robbery. So, you know, what's Campus Carry doing, really?
1: What I like to add to that, though, is I think Campus Carry supporters – have have two things that they're concerned about one they like to carry their gun around and they would like to carry it around in more places so that's a very simple uh reason for them to want it uh the policy and i can understand that even if i don't agree with it and then the uh second element is they they are not under the impression that it is a good resolution to a situation like this, that the two getting a shootout with each other. It's more of, they think just because they are a rational human being that thinks rationally, they would not go to a place that they know people have guns or can have guns and try to rob someone. So they're thinking... Their thinking is if you're not allowed to have guns someplace, that is a great place to rob people is is the mindset. So by having a place where you allow guns, then it's less likely that people will get robbed. That is their argument. I don't think it's a good one, but that is their argument.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't buy it. (laughs) I'm just, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of campus carry, but, but I I am going to be curious to see how this lawsuit goes as it moves forward, and if instances like these play into, I mean, it's obviously not going to play into the legalistic, you know, decision on this is a constitutional question. um, And not really, you know, the Constitution does not speak on gun policy. Um, So what do we think about the status of this law moving forward for Democrats? You know, there's a real chance the Democrats would have a shot at taking the state house in 2020. Um, uh, Stacey Abrams ran on repealing campus carry when she ran for governor do should Democrats be running on repealing this law
2: um running on it maybe mentioning it might be more the the approach I would take so it's you already kind of mentioned it Kyle this has been in effect this guy hasn't fallen it's clearly not helping nor hurting the situation now granted Things may change between now and when campaign season really gets into high gear. Um, so I do think that it should be mentioned, but I think that we have bigger fish to fry and bigger things, bigger issues that we need to hear from our candidates about. Um, but sure, yeah, they can mention, oh, yeah, I'm going to re- repeal campus carry, too. What I'd prefer to hear about is what they're going to do about guns in general, not just campus carry. Luke, I have a question. What do we, what does, what do next steps look like for this particular case? I'm not really familiar with what comes next as far as a case that may or may not have standing.
1: Yeah. You know, so the judge is going to look at it. Uh, the reporting we've seen says that they'll make a decision by November. So I, I imagine that both sides are going to go back and forth and, you know, try to, you know, the professors are going to try to show that they have standing and the uh, uh, the state's going to keep saying that they don't. Uh, but we're really going to have to look and see if uh, Governor Kemp signs HB 311, because I think that could probably affect the case. And, you it's one of those things that you know judges work in a mysterious way, so it's really hard to, to tell which direction this is going to go, but since it was thrown out once before and it doesn't seem to be uh, significantly different than the case they brought last time, that doesn't bode well for them, but three 3- again, 311 might make... Um, a difference. And you know, the the plaintiffs have had uh, ability to refine their arguments. So uh, we'll just have to watch and see. And well, it seems like we, we will know uh, by November.
0: All right. Well, I think we are going to wrap it there. Lots of coming attractions on this uh, week's podcast. Are we going to impeach the president? Are we going to protect LGBT people in the workplace? Are we uh, going to Trumpify the 6th and 7th districts and are we going to ban guns on campuses all of those questions will be answered I don't know sometime before we quit doing this podcast uh, but for now we are going to leave it there uh, so thank you Luke Boggs for joining our show today my pleasure and Megan always wonderful to have you as well thanks Kyle righty, guys we will talk to you all next week alright bye. bye that's our show for the week If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.